we, we're in a series on abundant life. Um, Joe's experiencing abundant life now. And uh, we're looking at what it is for us to experience abundant life uh, here, particularly because of the good news about Jesus Christ, which is the gospel, the good news. And we're looking in Romans to understand more of that. If you do have a Bible with you, then could you turn to Romans chapter 5 in a few minutes, uh, in a couple of moments, we're going to turn to Romans chapter 5 after I've just said a few introductory things. The, the focus that we have this morning is on how the gospel makes a difference in relationships. How the gospel makes a difference in relationships. The Old Testament book of Proverbs uh, says some things in very uh, uh, sort of frank and straightforward language about the importance of good relationships. Um, Proverbs 15 says, Better a dish of vegetables with love than a fattened calf with hatred. I'm not sure how that one plays out for any vegetarians with us. But a couple of chapters later, I'm sure we can all uh, relate to this in a heartfelt way. Better a dry crust with peace and quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. There's something about strife and hatred that sucks all of the joy out of life. All of the abundance away from us. Harmony harmony in relationships is challenging. Uh, Just this week, through some poor communication, um, some of you, most of you will know, I chair the governing body of Tyndale Community School, the primary school that we started just over three years ago. And in that role, I had some communication to do with parents. And I managed to shock and disappoint some parents who let me know that uh, through poor communication. I had something for which I needed to apologize. That's been my last week. There has been some lack of harmony. Uh, uh, Carol might be, Carol's the parent family liaison. It might be wondering what I did wrong. I don't know. It's, I think it's okay now. Uh, but that kind of strife, I'd be surprised if any of us have got through this whole week without some kind of strife somewhere. It's typical in our lives that we have this. So almost certainly, as soon as I mention the challenge of harmonious relationships or finding harmonious relationships, quite likely someone specific is coming to your mind right now. Like, you know where that issue lies right now, who it is that you are at odds with, or who is at odds with you. If we know that, if if that's true for us, that there are strife in our relationships, the same is undoubtedly true for anyone and everyone that you can think of. This is a human experience. So we turn to Romans chapter 5. I'm going to read from verse 6 through to verse 10, and towards the end is the word reconcile, which is where we're going to land our focus this morning. This is what it says, actually from verse 7. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God 
demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? As ever in the book of Romans, these are rich verses. And in the second paragraph there, especially, Paul gives a, one of a, a number of neat summaries of the gospel that we'll find in the New Testament. I just want to walk us through some of the key things that Paul says in those few verses in verses 9 and 10. Uh, The first thing is to recognize that all of this, this good news that Paul is describing, how's that? Um, That all of the good things that that, that Paul is describing come about because of what Jesus did at the cross. The first, he says, very rarely will anyone die, but Jesus died for us. This is about stuff that happens because of Jesus' death. So he describes various effects of Jesus' death. And the first of those in verse 9 is that we are justified. I'm not going to say much about this this morning because a few weeks ago I spoke about it at greater length. But suffice to remind those who are here, or say to those who weren't, the word justified is connected to the same family of words in Greek as the words righteous and righteousness, and it could have been translated righteous or made right. And this uh, reality of being justified has two thrusts. It means two uh, equally important things. One is that we are accepted by God. Having been at odds with him, in there being strife in our relationship with God, that is dealt with, and the relationship with God for which we were made is restored. Amazing. Uh, and the renewed innocence. Humanity was made in God's image. Then sin came in, and we've done things wrong. Things that... Uh, rightly mean we are labeled guilty. As it said in the verses that we read, sinners. We we understand, I'm sure, what that means. But to be justified means that we we have our innocence renewed, means that God doesn't treat us as guilty anymore, but will treat us as those who are innocent. That's what, what it means to be justified. As I said, if you want to think more about that, understand more of that, go online and find a talk on the subject from a couple of weeks ago. Uh, It happens by Jesus' blood. Uh, I don't know how many of you have seen Mel Gibson's film, The Passion of the Christ, which has Christ crucified covered in blood. It's one of a number of things in that film that doesn't bear much relationship to historical reality. Actually, witnesses of the time tell us that crucifixion was a relatively bloodless death. It wasn't all blood and gore. And so to say that we're 
justified by Jesus' blood does not, would not, for the Romans, have immediately made them think of crucifixion. But it would have made them think of sacrifice that went on in temples where animals' throats were slit and blood was captured and poured out. In fact, the temple in Jerusalem had plumbing installed in the masonry specifically for the blood. So it could be tipped away and there were whole drainage systems to carry the blood out of the temple. There was so much of it. And so to say that we have been justified by Jesus' blood would have reminded the first readers of this letter of sacrifice. What happened in a sacrifice was an animal, typically, could have sometimes been some other kind of food stuff, but an animal would have been placed on the altar as an offering that was understood to be pleasing to God. So the picture is very simple, that Jesus at the cross did something that pleased the Father immensely. There was something about Jesus' act at the cross that was so pleasurable to God that it had all kinds of consequences. The next one of those that's mentioned in the passage, and it's mentioned twice, is about being saved. Now, Christians can use that word saved quite liberally, not always think about quite what it means, but the New Testament is clear that we are saved from a danger. And that danger is specifically the wrath of God. As we've been in this series on abundant life and looked at Romans, it's not something that we have yet majored on. We've not had a morning exploring God's righteous anger. We've not had a morning exploring his condemnation of sin. But here it is. The reality is that God is indeed angry about sin. He sees the spoiling that takes place through sin of that which is precious. He sees the brokenness and the pain and the suffering that follow from our sin. And he plans to punish sinners. He still does. He still... He still has a plan to punish sinners. It's a plan that's live and active. It's not being shelved. And so when we read in the Bible about being saved, what it means is that we have been saved from that wrath of God. That that punishment will no longer be ours. And then it says, at uh, the end of verse, or in verse 10, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved? And that is saved from God's wrath through his life. But I want to focus our thinking now on this word reconciled. What it means... To be reconciled is that two things that were separate are brought together. Two things that were separate are brought together. And the word reconciliation in the New Testament speaks of our being united with Christ. Having been separate from him, 
we are brought back together. I want you to notice a couple of things here. Firstly, reconciliation, it says here, is an effect of the cross. It says here in verse 10, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. It was Jesus' death that achieved reconciliation. This really matters for us practically because sometimes we think that we will be reconciled to God when we cease in our opposition to him and come to him humbly. But it's actually the other way around, that we are reconciled to God because he has removed his own opposition to us through Christ at the cross. And that means we don't have to work up some certain standard or quality of coming to Christ in the right way to somehow trigger the clause that says now reconciliation is possible. It does not depend on how well we approach him. It doesn't matter how earnestly you know, we uh, try to make it happen, a renewed connection with God. The New Testament tells us that God demonstrates his love and that he reconciled us to himself through the cross. That is, he dealt with his own anger and he dealt with the need for punishment. He removed his wrath through what Jesus did. And that means that we don't have to try to make reconciliation happen by the energy with which we turn to God or any such thing, but simply to accept, simply to receive the gracious gift that God gives to us. What's required of us is simply humility. I've used this picture, I oh, don't want, there we go, I've used this picture a number of times already this term, quoting John Calvin, that faith means we come empty but with mouths open. Something in us that is hesitant to accept that we are as needy as like these little baby birds, utterly dependent on being fed. So we, uh, <laughs> to acknowledge that vulnerability, to acknowledge that level of need something we're often hesitant to do. But that's the nature of faith. We recognize that we're coming empty, but ready to receive. So we can all receive reconciliation with God today. We can all reconnect with God today. Through the cross, Jesus has dealt with what stood in the way, the opposition of God to relationship with us has been dealt with by the pleasing sacrifice that Jesus made. So we can come to him and simply receive fresh connection with him. And I mean, it's all a bit sort of theological and lots of different words about it. It's quite simple, really, isn't it? I don't know about you, but I would like a renewed connection with God. I, I have a connection with God, 
I do. I know his presence. I, I know I'm in Christ. And he, but I, could, I, I reckon there's quite a lot more reconciliation still to experience. There are parts of me that I hold back from him. And there's just no need. There's no need to hold back from him because he's done everything that would stand in the way. And by faith, we can be justified and reconciled. Now, this is good news. <laughs> Not only for us personally, this is good news that spills over for others. And I've got a video that I'm hoping we can watch now, which tells someone's story of how his encounter with Christ spilled over into other relationships in his life. Yeah, in Matthew 18, Jesus tells a story of a man who is forgiven by a king. A king is a picture of God himself and how on being forgiven, it is expected of that man that he would go and dispense forgiveness to others who need it from him. There is a naturalness to this process that on being forgiven by God, on reconnecting with God, he places something in us that changes how we feel, how we think about other relationships. For that guy, his name was Bruce. <laughs> his encounter with Christ had a profound effect on his family. Many a marriage has been saved because either a husband or a wife approached the other with the words, I forgive you, or will you forgive me? Of course, the more intimate the relationship, the more important the relationship, the more there will be to forgive. Lots of counselors uh, advocate forgiveness. Other faith traditions, Buddhism, Judaism, Islam, advocate forgiveness because uh, it brings an end to cycles of revenge. And because it frees us from bitterness, enabling us to move on. They say, if you can find it in yourself to forgive, then it would be, it would be a wise thing to do. Now, the Christian gospel is different. The good news about Jesus is that he died a death that achieves reconciliation. So our forgiveness isn't just something that God has done to make himself better, feel better, but his forg our forgiveness was bought by him at an incredible price. And so our forgiveness is like a, a, a treasure, a resource that has been placed in us that, that we can pay onwards without being any the poorer. Having freely received, mouths open, we can freely give. In 2005, uh, a girl called Charlotte Foley, aged 15, was murdered at a birthday party in East London. The following February, an 18-year-old, Beatrice, was jailed for life for what had been an unprovoked attack. Um, this is Charlotte's mum's words. Her mother's name is Mary Foley. She says, it was in the early hours of Sunday morning that the police rang to tell me 
that Charlotte had been stabbed. And it was like being catapulted into a different world. I didn't know what to do. I couldn't believe it. People came to the house. I felt paralyzed. And for the first few days, I just thought about my baby, Charlotte, not knowing she was going to be stabbed that night and me not being there to hold her in my arms. It was very hard to swallow. I had so much hope for Charlotte. All her future promise had been snatched away in an instant. Two weeks after Charlotte's death, I prayed and held on to my faith and received comfort and support from Christ and from my husband. And God gave me the strength and the grace to forgive. I didn't say anything to my family at that time because I felt that they might not have understood. Some people tell me that I'm brave and strong, but others don't say much. No one's actually come up to me and said, you can't have loved your daughter if you've forgiven her killer. I, I know that's what they think at times. And I understand that because some people are disgusted by the very idea of forgiveness. It can seem like an act of betrayal. But on the contrary, it's an act of freedom. As I was preparing to speak this morning, I thought to myself, wouldn't it be amazing if the city of Oxford was filled with people like this? Wouldn't that be an amazing city in which to live? People who, comforted by Christ, forgive others. What would it be like to live in a city where people were being constantly forgiven for their failings, even their dire failings. Because the problem is that many people cannot find it in themselves to forgive, or perhaps don't believe they should, or they wonder, how could forgiveness possibly occur without undermining justice? That sense of betrayal, betrayal of right and wrong, let alone betrayal of people. For Mary Foley, she was connected to Christ. She had experienced reconciliation with Christ. And he supported her. He placed treasure in her that gave her plenty to give away. She knew, like the man in Jesus' parable, that she'd been forgiven. And from there had so much to give away. Wouldn't it be amazing to live in a city filled with people like this. That was a thought that came to me. And then I had a, another thought. Wouldn't it be even more amazing if the city had some people in it who could explain to others that there is an inexhaustible source of forgiveness? Wouldn't that be amazing if there were some people in the city who could explain to others that there was an inexhaustible source of forgiveness. And then I thought, oh, well, there is. That's us. Aren't we amazing? 
we have a message of good news about relationships that has the power to transform the entire city. Or if, if the whole city is a lot to think about, to transform your workplace, your college, the school where you connect with people. You see, when we think of serving our city, it's not just about the activities that we do to serve people. It's also about the words that we speak. We can speak forgiveness to people. We can find ways to let people know that we love them, even though they don't deserve it. I wonder who there is in your life who could do with hearing from you in some way that you love them and where necessary that you forgive them. And we, can't, we, 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 we have the opportunity not only to speak forgiveness to people, but to speak about forgiveness. We can encourage others to forgive as the better path. We can speak about how much it means to us to have been forgiven including the perfect forgiveness that comes from God. And we can speak about the source of that forgiveness. That is the cross of Christ, where mercy and justice meet so that forgiveness can work without any sense of betrayal or injustice because forgiveness was purchased at an unbelievable price. Uh, we were encouraged in the worship earlier, God spoke to us about surrender to him. I, I don't know, I obviously don't know for all of us what that point of surrender is. I've been in Sheffield the last few days and uh, one point of surrender, I was there to learn about how, to, to, how the message that we have works in our church community to, to be spread beyond that. And one of the things that we were encouraged to do on the one evening was to go out as we got a meal and, and uh, look into some part of the city and try and understand what was going on there, but to speak to people. Now, um, I, I don't like speaking to strangers. I don't. Some of you do, but it takes quite a lot for me to overcome my social awkwardness and go up to someone I don't know at all and even just say hi. Now, some of you are like me. Um, yeah, probably quite a few actually, are like me. For me, it was a point of, for this last few days, the greatest point of surrender for me was saying, Lord, have my mouth. It's yours. And help me to speak to people that I really, in my own desire, would avoid speaking to. I ended up having a lovely long conversation with a lady with Alzheimer's who told me all sorts of things about the city of Sheffield. And I, I believe I was a blessing to her. Um, I suspect that for many of us, this issue of surrender to Christ and him coming to change us includes changing what we say. And we have such good news. We have such good news of reconciliation. So as, as we finish our meeting, I'm actually going to hand over to you and ask you to do a little bit of work. hope that's okay. As has already been mentioned this morning, our vision for this year as a church is to remember 
make sure we remember that there is an open heaven because of what Jesus has done. And, oh, this one keeps working. Oh, there we go. And well done for everyone on the technical stuff this morning, by the way, especially to Helen doing words for the first time. Uh, I wouldn't want to do that job. Uh, we have a vision for, to, to live this year remembering that heaven's open because of what Jesus has done, but to live open lives as well. It's making time for people and making our faith visible. So I do want to suggest that there are two kinds of opening that you might well experience this week. And the first one is this. Is there someone this week whom you might get to forgive? Could there be an opportunity this week for you to forgive someone? Question. Or if there's no one that you need to forgive, is there someone around you that you might have the opportunity to encourage to forgive? Or tell about your experience of having been forgiven. Those would all be wonderful openings, wouldn't they? And I bet they're all around us. So the work I want to give you in just a moment is quite straightforward. It's could you have a little think about that and look ahead to your week and ask yourself the question, is there someone that I could speak in these ways to? That would be a wonderful opening and a way of living an open life about our faith. Here's a second opening that might happen. It really follows on from the first one. If you did have a conversation with someone about forgiveness, and that conversation continued, which isn't a given, but it's quite a possibility, um, how would you explain the link between Jesus' death and our forgiveness? Would Would you have any words with which you could join those dots up for people? Question. That one might take a little bit more thinking about. That might be something you'd like to take and chew over as you chew your lunch or think about later in the day, maybe this evening instead of watching the Strictly Come Dancing results. It might be a more fruitful thing to do. It just might be a more fruitful thing to do to think about What words might you have to explain the link between forgiveness and Jesus' death? And with those words in mind, enter more confidently into conversation this week and just see what God would do. So uh, I'm going to give you a moment now, particularly to think about that first opportunity or opening that is likely to take place this week. Um, And you might also want to think about when you could take a bit longer to think about the second opening and how you might be ready for it. And Al's going to finish uh, the meeting for us.